The contents of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's financial objectives, financial situation or needs. Listeners should obtain independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hi, welcome to another edition of Health Kick. I'm Tim Boren. Well, today I've got the pleasure of talking with David Williams, who almost needs no introduction as a well-known corporate advisor and an investor in life sciences and agribusiness. Now, among the many hats he wears, David is the principal of the advisory firm Kidder Williams, which advises companies on merger and acquisitions, as well as fundraising. Uh, among his uh, well-known clients are Bega Cheese, Coca-Cola, Vegemite, SPC, Buller and Tassel. In the past, David has also headed the M&A divisions of Societe Generale, ANZ and the legendary Arthur Anderson. And on the investment side, David personally bought the failed Tassie salmon producer Tassel and refloated it as the decidedly more successful Tassel Mark II. In the biotech space, uh, David's uh, very active, of course. He personally bought and floated medical developments and is still a 13% shareholder in the company, and we'll talk about that one later. Uh, Medical Developments sells the frontline pain relief tool known colloquially as the Green Whistle. David also chairs the wounds management house Polynovo and owns about 3% of that company. Um, Under the banner of his private Mogs Creek entity, uh, David can be seen on a lot of other biotech registers as well, um, including the uh, cancer drug developer Race Oncology, Bard One, and the radiotherapeutics group Clarity Pharmaceuticals, uh, which uh, recently listed. So uh, welcome, David. Thanks very much, Tim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure. So it's almost uh, it's almost hard to know where to start. Can I ask you what fundamentally attracts you to the life sciences sector? Well, I think I'm very keen on any sort of business that can be scaled without much capital, and uh, so that automatically leads you to some of the tech startups, and it automatically leads you to a number of the biotech startups as well or companies. So. You know, what I saw, for example, in Medical Developments International, the Green Whistle, as you refer to it, and what I saw in Polynovo was, you know, two fundamentally simple technologies that had a worldwide application and really just needed to, as you would say in 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 a recipe book, just add water because I think in both cases they were underdone and needed some substantial capital to go into them. But the tech, in terms of development of the tech um, and the manufacturing plants and so forth, was pretty trivial. So, you know, what what attracts me, um, the first thing that attracts me is just the ability to scale and scale without, you know, too much capital. If I, if I, if I compared it, for example, to you name some companies there, Coke or Bega, if Bega said to tomorrow, look, I'll tell you what we want to do, we want to put up a new cheese plant, in California, well, give me three or four or five hundred million dollars, and uh, that's what it's going to take. Whereas the expansion of medical developments and the expansion of Polynovo can be done, 
with single-digit millions and, uh, and then expanded after that with hundreds of thousands, not tens or hundreds of millions. So that's the difference for me. Yes, yes, and it's a big difference. The really interesting thing with medical developments is that it, it, it's a very old technology, isn't it? It's um, The green whistle is the analgesic, uh, it's, it's called penflox, I think, which athletes get when uh, done their knee or, or, or been injured and, and, and what have you. But, but it's actually been around since, since 1975. You sort of came along and uh, saw the global potential of it. Well, I think it, it has been around for a long time. It's a drug called methoxyfluorine, but it's um, it, it started life as an anaesthetic and and this is, you know, before the isofluorins and the, the anaesthetics, if you're going for an operation now and they, the, the anaesthetists will say to you, count to three and by, by one you're already under. And uh, as they're finishing an the operation, they can turn it off and you're coming out of it pretty quickly as well. Um, methoxyfluorane as, a, as an anaesthetic was a bad anaesthetic. You needed to take a hell of a lot of it. it took you a long time to go, go under and a long time to come out of it. So... And uh, there were not many, but several cases of of toxicity to do with liver and so forth. And um, and uh, yeah, people say, well, that's why it was abandoned as an anaesthetic. I don't think so, but it's lost in the history and the mist of time. But yeah, I think it was more because it was just a bad anaesthetic in terms of its efficiency. Uh, and so I think Abbott had it at the time, and they sort of threw the baby out with the bathwater and. And, and, a, and a very smart man in Melbourne called David Komisaros, who's sadly passed, but who was a, a chief anaesthetist, I think, at Royal Melbourne and then uh, somewhere down the peninsula. And he's a bit real inventor. And he had that view. He said, he's throwing that baby out with the bathwater. I mean, what happens with this is it's a bad anaesthetic, but several breaths do two things. Number one, it'll kill your pain. And number two, it's got very strong anxiolytic effects. So it takes away your anxiety. And that's important to know because, for example, the business sells quite a lot each month to dentists. Now, you know, the dentist can go and buy a needle for who knows how much, a buck, let's say. Why would he pay $25, $30 for, for this? Because it's, it's widely used on phobic patients. People don't want to get even get in the chair. They can't get in without crying or sweating. So, you know, a few puffs on this, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, in the waiting room or even in the chair and do anything to me. You're still completely in charge of your faculties, but it takes away, primarily takes away your anxiety. It's not necessarily as a as a pain relief device, even though it will act as that as well. So, so it was repurposed and repurposed so that it was very effective for very short, painful procedures where you don't want to necessarily put somebody under, where you don't want to take any risk on, on uh, overdosing um, or becoming addictive, which which you can't do with it. So it's very powerful in that sense. In and and increasingly in this world, in an opioid sparing world, you know it should have much wider applications and is having much wider applications. You've just got to get that American approval, though, don't you? It's approved in how many countries? Lot, lot, lots of countries. The US is holding out still, aren't they? I don't know if I'd say holding out. We're working with them, and I think there was another submission either just gone in or about to go in. So, you know, we're confident we're ultimately going to get there. But, look, every market, every regulator is different. And um, But one thing they're not different on is they're all very rigorous and robust. And the frustrating thing that everybody experiences, I think, is that 
you know, you, you get yourself through one regulatory process and you've got to go to the next and they've got a different set of proofs that they need, a different process, and it, nothing is nothing happens quickly. So, look, at, I mean, I've, I've, I've sort of relaxed into it over uh, several years and it is what it is. So, you know, they're trying to do their job. Sometimes it's crazy. You know, I mean, there are drugs, for example, they go, well, you know, we've got enough we've got enough pain relief in this country, why do we want to do a different one, you know? So proving safety in that is not always the issue, you know. You've really got to sort of know how the regulators are thinking, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And look, sometimes you don't know. Sometimes as you're trying to go through what is typically a two or three or sometimes longer period, the regulators themselves change. So, you know, and people come in with a different set of biases and, and the need for proofs and so forth. I'm, I'm relaxed about it. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the Green Whistle, and it's also true of Polynovo, is that people use it for a whole lot of reasons that as a board of directors, no matter how smart you are no, how, and no matter how seasoned you are at pharma and devices and so forth, you could sit around as a board till the cows come home and you still wouldn't think up the sorts of things some surgeons or in the case of MVP, some doctors use it for. I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, we we sat around actually as a board and we said, well, would we use it in dentistry? And of course, somebody says, well, why would a dentist pay $30 for a green whistle when he can go and get a needle for a buck? So we don't go and promote it. And one day out of the blue, a doctor comes to us who was actually a doctor in the army. And he had got a broken collarbone during a rugby match in the army and they gave it to him. The ambos gave it to him. And he thought, oh shit, this is unbelievable. You know, it's changed my anxiety, taken away my pain. I'm going to go and do a small trial, which he did with several of his dentist friends and uh, on using it in dentistry. And they came to us and said, look, look at this little trial we did on our own and we're now using it in dentistry. And so there's there's plenty of examples like that. I'll give you another example. We sat around as a board and we, we said, oh, well, what about... What about obstetrics, for example? And people are going, well, we don't know whether it goes across the placenta or it doesn't go across the placenta. Yeah, all those are, oh, no, we're not going to go anywhere near uh, that. So out of the blue, one day comes a doctor from Monash IVF who says, look, just want to let you know I'm using this widely. Well, what are you using it for? Well, I'm using it for things like uh, burning something, assist off a cervix by uh, collecting eggs by inserting an IUD, small operations where I don't want to, I've got somebody in my in my office or my studio, as it were, and, uh, you know, I don't want to give them a general. It's un, They're only going to have 15 seconds, 30 seconds or whatever it is of short pain. So the, the same is true of uh, Polynovo. I mean, Polynovo, you know, which we started selling and is still selling, obviously, for burns and wounds in the US. But if you look at what's happened in the three short years, or more particularly in the last 18 months in the US, you've got doctors using it for amputations, you've got doctors for using it for radiotherapy burns, diabetic foot ulcers, venous leg ulcers, um, necrotizing fasciitis, sort of diseases, and so whenever there's tissue loss. And so we sit around at the start three years ago without even having a product, without having any sales, saying, okay, this is burns and wounds, fine. But the doctors are, are running with it in all sorts of different directions where there's tissue loss and where they need a solution that's um, inert, you know, as a, as a synthetic polymer, you know. So I think that's one of the most fascinating things about this business is you know, how your customers take it in different directions that 
in in a very short period of time you couldn't have perceived you couldn't have known um you know six months before it's often got nothing to do with the indication you've gained approval for or sought approval for in other words it's the uh, definitely. It, definitely it's your label usage it's the old botox thing isn't it uh, it's the same as botox you're absolutely right um but unlike botox the the interesting thing about the polynovo btm the biotemporizing matrix that is used on burns and, and tissue loss and so forth um, the interesting thing is it really is in every sense of the word a platform technology in other words it's not just a it's not just a product for burns that somebody discovered oh shit if i had a different sort of word you know car accident some trauma or whatever it's used with that i mean it's being used in all sorts of ways outside the body obviously and now we've got you know, a demand for it to use the same foam inside the body. The foam, of course, as everybody probably, I hope, knows anyway, um, vascularizes very quickly and then it just dissolves and you either breathe it out or piss it out and so forth. Um, in the meantime, strengthening native tissue. Um, and uh, so that has become, you know, a platform technology, which is every month there's a new there's a new use for it that... Um, we didn't contemplate and we had a, a lady just a couple of weeks ago in the uk for example who uh, industrial accident had her hair caught in a roller and it ripped her whole scalp off well you know you put the btm on her scalp and next thing it's it's fixed i'll say fixed she can't grow hair back by the way but that's another story but she's alive and yes yeah, so that's the main thing yeah. and, and 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 what this does as a product it, it it at very worst is beautifying and at very best is life-saving. And so, you know, we had a guy in Adelaide, uh, you know, last year, I think 95% burns to his body. Now, in the old technology, you would be dead. There's no way to save you. But, you know, you cover the guy in our, in our foam and uh, a couple of months later, he's walking around and at home. And the foam is, is is protecting the body. Well, first of all, it rebuilds the dermis, but it protects the body and it gives the surgeon a long period of time. It could be a month, could be four months, could be five months in order to do to close a wound and put a skin graft on top of it. So it's, it's life-changing and uh, life-saving. Um, and But it's a platform that surgeons everywhere are taking in different directions. Now, I'm probably talking too much, Tim, but just to cap that off, uh, the uh, what what that means is, and this this might sound like a bad thing for Polynova, but it's actually a good thing, is that as a company we're playing catch up with the market. So you go into you get some people and you train them up and you go go and see a burn surgeon or and a general surgeon is doing wounds and and showing this product and this is how you do it. Well, within six months. The same hospital, let's say at UCLA, is using it for diabetic foot ulcers, and somebody's using it in the oncology section where you've burned somebody's scalp off or something, you know. So instead of going and seeing the burn surgeons in, in UCLA and then getting in your car and driving to a hospital in, in San Diego, you can now stay in the hospital all day if you like, and you'll go to another floor and see the diabetics people, another floor and see the trauma people, another floor and see the oncology people. And so we're playing catch up where we're, we're, we're trying to find out what all the surgeons are using it for and then to train our people, you know, appropriately. And the other area where we're playing catch-up, I mean, there's lots of doctors now using it for diabetic foot ulcers, but there's still plenty of doctors who say, well, hang on a minute, 
you know, I, I've never seen any data on this. I mean, I see guys in journals and conferences, but so in in a number of cases, we've had to go away and do small trials. It might only be 10 people, 20 people or whatever, in order just to show the more sceptical doctors some simple data on, you know, what happens, say, with the DFU. So there's a bit of catch-up to sort of be done uh, by us, which, as I said, sounds like a bad thing, but it, in, in fact, it's a fantastic thing because it's just reflecting how widely this is being used and how strong the platform uh, is that on which it sits. And, and who do you compete with, David? It's a, uh, it's a synthetic product, as you note, and the, uh, the rest are sort of biologically derived, I, I guess, from sort of all bits of, uh, of animals. Uh, so, so I presume that's the selling point. That's right. Look, we don't see ourselves as having that many competitors, and we certainly don't think about competitors when we go out to sell. And and I think we. It sounds a little bit arrogant, but it's not arrogant. First of all, you know, I'm told that we're significantly cheaper than some of the biologics. The surgeons, by the way, aren't buying it because we're cheaper. They they buy it because of the outcome. Nobody says to us, I'm only buying it because you're half the price of Integra, for example. Um, We don't get that at all. They buy it because they think it's a superior result. And um, so so it depends. The answer to your question is it depends on the market because there are people in biologics that are, for example, selling mainly for small, small pieces for things like diabetic foot ulcers, for example, you know. I think if we had if we had to say a competitor, it would probably be Integra, and Integra has a biologic. There's there's a, quite a number of biologics around that tend to be quite expensive, and and they tend to have rejection rates that we don't see, and the reason is because if you put a biologic, you know, on top of an open wound, sometimes it's like feeding the wound a smorgasbord, and. Uh, and the biologic sometimes gets rejected just in the same way as if I gave you my heart in about 25, 30% of cases, we're going to reject my heart and then you've got to change it again. And that happens also with wounds. But with us, of course, there is no smorgasbord coming to the wound site because we've got an inert sub, uh, substance and it vascularizes quickly and it dissolves quickly. So it gets people back on the road pretty quickly. So we don't see ourselves as really having a competitor. We see ourselves as having a completely open market with a completely widening, you know, application base. Um, and, you know, our main role in life now is to get as many people on the road as possible, as quickly as possible. Yeah, excellent. Now, both Medical Developments and Polynovo, you know, you know, they've had a great run over the past five years or so. Um, I think they're sort of both up to several hundred percent. I think recently they've struggled a bit more, or at least uh, share price wise. I'm just wondering in terms of your uh, style as a, as a shareholder and as a member of management, are you sort of happy to, to, to get down and dirty, so to speak, and the grassroots of, of the company to right things which are going wrong? Very. I mean, I'm very happy to do it. And um, as you can hear by my answers, you know, I've got a quite a detailed knowledge of the company and the products. What I don't have is enough time to be an executive chairman, and uh, and uh, so that's not what I want to do. And uh, I don't want to get on the road. There are people who are better at that than than I am. But I I think if you look at our just take Polynovo for example, if you went back a year to the sort of I think November when we had our our AGM for the 2020 year, I think I made some sort of announcement like we'd grown 100 percent in the US. And the stock was about $2.50. And within two weeks, 
it went to $4 a share. It was way over $2 billion. Now, remember, by the way, when I came in to help fix this company about five, six years ago, it was $30 million. So the growth has been, you know, astronomical by any company standards, right? Uh, but it went, as I said, from two fifty a share and it spiked to over $4 a share within a couple of weeks. But I, I gave, a, I put a little graph up at the AGM this year um, because people say to me, oh, well, gee, what have you done to the company? We're at four bucks and next thing we're at, you know, two fifty, and now we're at one fifty, and so forth. I said, well, you know, the price is probably more likely to be two fifty, but here's why it happened. And so it's very interesting to go and have a look. People are interested because it's a lesson in corporate finance in a way. Go and have a look at the AGM and just have a look at the graph I put in there. And it graphs the share price against the number of short-selling shares in the market. And so what you see is, and make up these numbers a bit, but at the AGM, a share price is circa, say, 250. I announced that we've done 100% growth. We were about 7% short. In other words, 7% of a billion and a half company is sold as borrowed shares that are borrowed and sold that people don't really own. And so when they, the short sellers, see that we're growing enormously, they have to cover themselves. So they bundle into the market and they start buying shares with their ears pinned back so that they can give the shares back to the person they borrowed them off. So what you see in that graph is you'll see our short position go from about 7% down to under 2% to let's say 1.5%. So in a in a billion and a half, two billion dollar stock, somebody trying to buy six percent of the shares in the market who aren't really buying them as a normal investor like a lot of your people are, are hearing this would be doing, they're they're selling them because they they sold them short because they think the price is going to go lower. And when they figure figure out shit, the price is going to go higher. I better get this covered real quick. So they drive it to four bucks. It's not a fun. It's not a fundamental valuation thing. It's a, it's a short squeeze, in other words. It, it, was, it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. You know, if you're a finance lecturer at university, you'd just pull that graph out every time. It's the most amazing thing. And, of course, once it gets to four bucks, then you've got a whole different set of shorts. You're going, this thing's way overpriced. should be more like 250 So people start selling the stock again, and you'll see this uplift in the short position, which then goes from under two back up to six or something. So, so it's but but look, I mean, there's no right or wrong answer in trying to value this business on the basis of um, of those graphs. But if you looked at it, a sensible person would say it was never should have been four bucks. It was only there for an aberration, and the price more likely should be two twenty five, two fifty. If you looked at that, you know. Um, so you know, we we then um, then COVID came along for the twenty one year. I'm just giving you, by the way, just a quick and dirty explanation for what I how I look at the share price and uh, our stocks shorted up to five six percent COVID comes along and even though we'd grown let's say 100 percent the year before in America for FY21 we only grew for 49 percent so I think we got when we announced that we got punished a bit and and I was bemused because you know half the hospitals were shut and since then by the way it's got we've got hospitals now starting to open but it's a patchy thing in the us you know uh, there's uh, hospitals coming in and out of opening there's hospitals coming in and out of elective surgery and now we've got an added complication where some hospitals are open but they're sacking staff because they refuse to be jabbed so that's what we've had to sort of put up with in the us and when we grew 49 percent i i thought I, I thought people should be patting me on the back and it 
on the contrary, I had people saying to me, what happened to 100%, you know, even though the world was burning. So, um, so look, I don't, I don't take too much of notice of that. I don't really care. It's uh, we, we pivoted and we were able to grow not because we just had perseverance going to hospitals that are open, but because we're doing webinars and we're you know, contacting doctors in other ways. And, um, and the, the product works. The doctors love it. As far as I know, we've never had a doctor who goes, ah, I don't like the product anymore. We, we don't see that. If a, if a doctor says to me he's trialling it, I know I've never seen a doctor trial it and not buy it after it because the results are so spectacular. And the doctors kind of know what they want, don't, don't they? If they like something that they like it and they're, they're quite conservative, they won't change in a hurry. So uh... Correct. But, but look, on this, it's a much easier sell. You know, even though it might take you three months, six months, nine months or something to get a doctor across the line or to trial it. And and often times, by the way, you know, let's say you were just doing burns in your life, which not many people do, but, you know, you might be waiting for six months to get the first patient. So we get a lot of, lot of doctors who come, I love this. I'm just waiting for my first patient, you know. But once they trial it, they they love what they see and they're, they're converted very quickly. Um, so it's, uh, it's a very easy... It's a very easy product to sell in that sense, relatively speaking. Let me let me contrast it, for example, with the green whistle, where you'd say, "Well, it only costs thirty bucks. That should be pretty easy to to uh, to sell." And I'll tell you what's the other easy about it is that typically, let's say it's in an ambulance service, you only really have one person to sell to. That is the chief medical officer in the ambulance service, and if he says it's in, it's in, and everybody else just gets trained up. So you don't have to go from ambulance to ambulance trying to convince people, but what happened is, I'll give you an example where we go to New Zealand. So you go to New Zealand and te- talk to the chief medical officer. And he says, I love it. That's great. Yeah, I'll, I'll use that. But I can't use it today. The reason I can't use it today is because I bought some Internox cylinders and masks and pipes and all that stuff. This is, the, this is the stuff you typically see on the news in foreign clients when there's a disaster. You know, ambulance officers with people on stretchers with a cylinder on their chest and, and face masks. That's laughing gas. That's Internox. And so New Zealand said, we love it. We'll, we'll put it in. And we don't want these other drugs to be taken out. We don't care. What we know is when you put the green whistle in an ambulance officer's hands, he uses it because he doesn't have to carry cylinders. He doesn't have to try and get a face mask on somebody who's in a car somewhere or down a cliff. You know, it's much easier for them to use. And so once we're in, we're in. But in New Zealand case, they said, look, we've just bought all these new cylinders. We need to depreciate them. Come back in a year. So we sort of got the sale, but we haven't got any sales. So you go back in a year and he goes, yeah, I know I said that, but I still want to keep depreciating what I got. Three years it took us to get it in, you know. The guy was always going to take it, but you can't, you can't get him to throw his old car out before it's you know, done a few miles, you know. No, that's right. Exactly, exactly. Just to sort of finish off, I'm, I'm sort of interested that you're, from, from what I can see, all of your investments are um, Australian. I think most of them are ASX listed. So is that an Australian uh, flag flying thing or a uh, reflection on the uh, nature of uh, Australian investors, sort of particularly in, in biotech and uh, other speculative things? In other words, do they kind of sort of get it a bit more than uh than other people, maybe? No, look, I, it, it's a reflection of how I see my own M&A business, for example, and, and equity capital markets business. I'm very suspicious if somebody... We, we get in here once every two or three months, somebody from some other country that wants to list in Australia. They might be US, they might be Israeli, they might be from Malaysia. And the first question I ask myself is, why would you come to another country 
to raise money when you could have done it in your own backyard. And sometimes there's an okay reason for it, but usually it's bullshit. And and so I sort of, and, and we have guys who work for me who go, you know what, I reckon there's a takeover for us to do up in Singapore, up in Malaysia. You know, why don't we go up there and pitch on this work? Well, what I say to them is, look, it's hard enough to make a dollar in your own backyard. And if it's hard enough to make it here, almost certainly you're going to get legged over by going offshore. And and there's so much here to be done without having to go offshore and all of the costs that go with it and the uncertainties that go with that. You don't understand the culture. You don't understand. Yeah, it's got very costly to go and do the DD. You know, there's so many opportunities here. So why would you go anywhere else? And and, and so I don't have a preference to say, oh, I'm, so I'm you know, fiercely Australian and, and the tech here is better than anywhere else. I can argue those cases like we all can, but the reality is there's so many opportunities here and the work is easy to get and the due diligence is easy to do and the people are easier to control and the money's easy to get because people understand they can walk down the street and they can go across to Port Melbourne and see Polynova or they can go out to Scoresby and see medical development. So, you know, that's what I'm, that's what I'm really sort of pursuing is just the local flavour. It's too hard to make money off. It's hard enough for everybody to make money in this country. As soon as somebody talks you into putting your money offshore, my God, my God's sake, you not only got to understand it, but then you've got pricing and exchange rates and, you know, you can have a silly situation where you're making a lot of money on the stock, but you're losing it because of FX, you know. Because of currency, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, good, great, David. Well, look, uh, we're out of time, um, and but, but, but that's great. We covered a lot of ground. If you don't look at anything else, look at Polynovo because it's got the potential to be a $10 billion company and quickly, and it's based on a good Aussie tech. It's a fantastic platform, and it's the sort of company that can happen quickly and we can all be proud of. It's not going to be a CSL at $130 billion, but it's – it's going to be big and and it's a, an unbelievable product. Yes, it's, it's very deceptive too because I, I, I held a piece of Nova Sorb once and it's just like a uh, a bit of foam. It feels like a bit of foam you uh, you get in a uh, a parcel, but, but it's uh, it's very strong. Yeah, it is. And, uh, it is a bit of foam, yes, but it's not the one you get in the parcel. It, it just maybe looks like a lot more sophisticated. It's it's easy to talk about it, but we've got a website and on that website is a little section for medicos and. Uh, in there is, you know, 10 or 12 of the key surgeons in the world standing beside their patients, pushing and pulling the patients, showing you what they've done. And in the hands of a good surgeon, this is, you know, can hardly see the joints. That's terrific. Well, great, David. Uh, great, great to chat. And uh, let, let's talk again. Tim, my pleasure. Anytime. <laughs>